Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome to Faith Matters three distinguished scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community and regular panelists on Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome oh, to Faith Matters. To my immediate uh, right, of course, is Dr. Zaid Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Wa Saab. To his right, it's a pleasure to welcome from across the pond, of course, Maulana Azhar Hanif Sahib, who's a senior missionary in the US and also the Vice President of the Amdiya Muslim Community in the United States. Assalamu alaikum and welcome, Azhar Sahib. And to his right, always a pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters, of course, a regular panelist, a senior missionary here in the UK and head of the French desk, Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib. Assalamu alaikum Jahangir Sahib. We're going to take on our world travels today to Dar es Salaam uh, for our first question from Saf Hassan uh, Nokochima. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your question. Uh, Saf is referring to chapter 46, verse 5 of the Holy Quran. And in talking of that particular chapter, he's talking about religious truth and how truth of prophets is established. And he's putting forward the proposition that in the current world, there is a development in science and technology. And many research has been done. Is it possible that the truth of the revival of Islam, the renaissance of Islam, the message that the promised Messiah brought, can be scientifically proven, Azhar Sahib. Uh, looking at the uh, reference in the Quran, he quotes, and we read the words in chapter 46, uh, verse number five. I'll just read uh, the, the translation of this particular reference. It says, say, do you know what it is you call upon beside Allah? Show me what they have created in the earth, of the earth, or have they a share in the creation of the heavens? Bring me a book revealed before this or some vestige of knowledge in your support, if you indeed speak the truth. So we can see from this verse of Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about the sources of knowledge to prove the truth of a claim. Mm -hmm. And the first and foremost source of that is God himself. There should be something in revealed scripture that justifies someone's claim. And, and every, every faith believes this. The, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Quran is saying the same thing. If it's from something other than Allah, you'll find uh, all kind of incongruence in it. Mm -hmm. And you will find that this itself will be disproved because God will reject that person eventually. Uh, then secondly, it's talking about the vestige of knowledge here where we can use empirical evidence. We can mm -hmm. use our rational thinking and our reasoning skills, which also God has given us as a way to discover any truth. So the question is quite uh, simple answered in the very text itself here. 
these are the sources by, whereby we can prove something. And Hazrat Prophet himself has used all of these things to prove his own claims. He spoke about scripture, he spoke about history, he spoke about science, and he did research himself in many areas to prove his claim. I'll give you a couple examples. In the case of the, the death of Jesus, which he claimed to be the coming of Jesus, now naturally you wonder, where is the proof of this? So he spoke about reference in the Bible, reference in Quran, and then he spoke about empirical, empirical evidence. And eventually had his own disciple go as far as Kashmir to, to research this, this concept that came up in, in, in history, that someone is buried there whom they claim to be Yus Asaf for this traveling prophet. Yes. And the research led them to discover this was the tomb of Jesus. So that was a research which he did himself, or which was done along with the assistance of others that led him to scientific facts about the death of Jesus. And secondly, nowadays we have a research cell in, in Rabba, Pakistan that does the same thing. And one thing they've discovered is the, the ointment which was used on the body of Jesus when he came down from the cross. Another evidence, scientific evidence to prove that this ointment has all kind of healing balms which are medicinally very effective in healing wounds and, and resuscitating the patients, etc. So again, this is another scientific research that's been done to prove the truth of Messiah that Jesus didn't ascend to heaven. He died a natural death. During the incident of the crucifixion, he was taken down alive and he was healed through these ointments. And so these things substantiate a claim. And thus uh, the questioner should, should be encouraged that up to now all of us should continue doing this. You know, for all the things we have uh, heard about in Quran and Hadith, to do the, do the research, to try to prove to those who want to see factual scientific basis for the spiritual uh, claims from any group. And, and this, therefore, it, it, it's, it's quite in line with what he's asking. It's not very clear on that. And just sort of taking forward a, a couple of the thoughts and the uh, item that uh, mentioned that items that you've mentioned as well, Jahangir particularly in the context of Hazrat Isa Jesus, as we know, Hazrat um, Sahib's already talked about. There's the science, there's the sort of scriptures, um, but also linked to that is plain and simple logic. I mean, when you have discussions with other Muslims, other denominations within Christians, there's also I always find there's one thing where you say put everything aside, just apply logic here about physical ascension, you know, where is heaven, where is... Um, but also the fact, the historic, you know, improving the claim of the promised Messiah using biblical references. You know, it's quite explicit in the Bible as to what the signs would be. And also the fact that when Jesus, uh, Prophet Jesus reappeared, he tried to conceal himself. He was always hiding. So if this was a great you know, resurrection, sense. it didn't make sense. The logic, exactly. so I, that's what I'm sort of getting at. There's yes, a logic to all exactly. of this. Exactly, when you well. follow, the, follow through with the whole story, then you see that actually here's a man who is hiding himself from the Roman Empire, and he was trying to avoid crucifixion by any means possible. Whereas if that had been his uh, mission in life, you know, to come to earth and then die on the cross, he would have readily gone and said, well, you know, here I am, put me on the cross, and then, you know, I can start saving you sinners, you know, bearing your sins and all that. It just doesn't add up. And also when you see him saying that I have other sheep who are not of this flock and uh, they must hear my voice so that there will be one shepherd and one flock. And he's saying that there are, there are others who I have to go to. Mm -hmm. 
so, there, was, there were so many references like that. Then we, we, we understand that he had a mission which was not yet fulfilled. Now, when we're turning to evidence, when we see new evidence coming up these days, like for example, the Aramaic inscriptions. Remember, Aramaic is a language which was spoken by Jesus. Indeed. It was spoken by people in the Middle East. We find these inscriptions um, made in stone by King Ashoka, who was a, a Buddhist king, whose, whose uh, realm extended right up to Afghanistan. You know the statues of Bamiyan, which were unfortunately blasted by, into smithereens by the Taliban. Mm -hmm. That used to be a Buddhist area. Mm -hmm. And uh, we find inscriptions in Greek and Aramaic, the two languages which were used by the Jews and by the Israelites in general, several hundred years before Jesus Christ. What are those things doing there? Who were the people who were speaking the, the, those languages? And they were in such numbers that he had to leave edicts in those n n uh, languages, you know, every so often on, on, on Stella, you know, uh, throughout his kingdom. It means they must have been in their thousands to have been, you know, re required such measures. So we see that there is evidence uh, cropping up now that the Israelites were there. They were the lost sheep, the lost tribes as they're called. And when we see other evidence from completely neutral sources, like for example the, the uh, Bhavishya Mahapurana, which is a, a Hindu, that's Hindu annals of the kings, when we see a person called Isa Masiha or Jesus the Messiah mentioned there, born of a virgin, and uh, who meets, uh, uh, you know, the uh, King Shalivahana, who's up in Kashmir for a, on, a, on a hunting trip, what is he doing in that book? And this is written sometime in maybe perhaps 78 AD, when he would have been a very old man by that time. So all this, this evidence is pointing towards the fact that he was there and he was there to meet the Israelites. And he was there to, to give them his message, and as he had said. So when you put all this together, as you, as you rightly pointed out, it's so logical. Yes. And it, it has, it's meaningful. But the other, or the alternative story is just things thrown in, you know, it's just theories of people which, are, which clash with each other, you know, it doesn't make any sense and doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason to, to it at all. So logic is very important. for that. And just as a sort of final point on this, Dr. Saab, just coming to you, the context in which this was put was just a Holy Quran and of course we hold the Holy Quran above all else and there's many, uh, an example one can give of proof of the promised Messiah's claim. But I think it's also important, as both Azasab and Jungi Saab have shown us, that other scriptures, other references, and indeed when you look at the time, as we believe, that Hazrat Isa al-Islam, Jesus, Prophet Jesus, uh, may God be pleased with him, was in uh, Kashmir, as we believe, that even the words Yus Asaf, when literally translated means the gatherer, and Jesus was known as the shepherd. So there's even, again, applying logic, there's you know, it's, it's a simple conclusion one can draw there as well. As you've said, uh, all the evidence points to the fact that uh, this was Jesus uh, who had gone to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to complete his mission for which Allah had sent him to this earth. Uh, and as Azasab has said, the Quranic evidence, the biblical evidence, the medical evidence, historical evidence, as Jahangir said, all point to this, to this fact. And the people from that area are aware of this and they talk about this in their own history. So this was Jesus the gatherer who had gone many, many miles away. And we believe that uh, the promised Messiah through divine revelation was able to uncover this and say that this was Jesus the son of Mary 
who had gone to the lost sheep of house of Israel and had traveled there. So all the evidence is there. The, the Hazrat Masih Islam, the promised Messiah wrote a book, Jesus in India. And all this evidence is contained in that. So it's not a trace of knowledge, but it is, you know, a whole fathom of knowledge there which people should actually go to and see that this is what was the outcome of Jesus. This is where he went. You know, when I was a student in Pakistan, during the summer season when it's quite hot, we would go to the hills of Murray. And the first time I went there, I said, why is this place named Murray? They said, there's a tomb here of this holy person whose name was Mary. Mm. And we believe she is the mother of Jesus. So I found it quite striking. Great. You know, a person coming from the USA is finally yeah. seeing the tomb of, of you know, the mother of, 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 of Jesus. And it's along the same route he would travel, okay. going to Kashmir and, and, and back you know, to the, the Middle East. Well, that, picking up on that point, yeah. I, I know this question, and it's a vast one, but uh, I think so varied. It still strikes me that despite the history, despite the obvious nature of what's said, and it's accepted not just within the community, mm -hmm. it's not just the Amdiya Muslim communities, mm -hmm. but traditions of that area say this is the tomb of mm -hmm. this revered lady. Mm -hmm. Yet people still reject the fact of what the logical conclusions can be drawn, and that uh, surprises me. I mean, mm -hmm. human logic would dictate anything mm -hmm. but thinking what the community's beliefs are. Well, this is what the human mind will do to justify its own belief system you will force yourself into this paradox of, of all kind of in, inconceivable ideas, incompatible ideas, just to make your truth in your heart stick. Otherwise, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as he says, how, how you cannot see the journey of a person trying to move away from an event that was really traumatic and didn't want to repeat that traumatic experience, so he's migrating away from that and going as far as he can and eventually settles there. As opposed to saying, no, no, he didn't do that. He, he floated to the heavens and he's sitting there now waiting to descend again one day. Now, even a small child, and sometimes I've, I've mentioned this in front of children, and they laugh. And of course, their own simple, logical mind rejects. It's impossible for a human being to float up. As one person said, what is more difficult to conceive? of a person going on a thousand mile journey or a person floating up to heaven. Mm. <laughs> Again, uh, I think logic applies. <laughs> Gentlemen, Jazakumullah as ever, my thanks also to Saif Hassan Saab for your question, you know, seek and you shall find, and certainly the Muslim community's belief, whether it's through religious scriptures um, or indeed logic and history and traditions all point to the proof and the strength of the Amdiya Muslim community's belief in the story of Jesus and indeed the renaissance of Islam through um, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Hulam um, Moving forward, if we may, we're going to travel to North America for our next question, which comes from Tanvir Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Tanvir Sahib. Um, Jazakumullah for your uh, kind thoughts about faith matters and generally the program, the team. Um, he said he's been having a discussion, Dr. Zaid Sahib, with uh, non amdi Muslims. Um, and in that, uh, one particular friend of his suggested that who we believe to be the promised Messiah, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Sahib, um, claimed to be the manifestation and the like of, and he compared himself to other prophets, and he, that he had even at times referred, and therefore, you know, there was a compare and contrast that look at the qualities, etc. Um, is there an answer to this particular question and this 
particular proposal. And of course, when he's speaking to others from other community, unfortunately, they're putting it as an allegation in that sense that this mm. is, again, it shows that how could this person compare himself to the likes of other prophets that had gone before them? Well, you see, uh, when, when we look at the history of mankind, what we come to realize and we know is that if Allah had not willed to send the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam on this earth, he would not have created the universe at all. Mm -hmm. So this is the basis for us to understand that the whole series of messengers that were sent over a progressive period of time, starting with Hazrat Adam salam, mm -hmm. had a definite purpose and a plan to it by Allah the Almighty. And at the head of that, at the pinnacle of that, was to be the Holy Prophet Muhammad who was to be the most exalted of all prophets. And his, his characteristics and qualities are mentioned in the Holy Quran <coughs> in that essence. Mm -hmm. And then to give him the title of Khatum al mm -hmm. is the highest praise that ever could be achieved by, by the Prophet of any nature. He is the seal of all the prophets. So that means that he actually is the embodiment of all the series of prophets that were sent by Allah the Almighty throughout that period. Mm -hmm. So the Holy Prophet in himself has the characteristics of Hazrat Adam, Hazrat Ibrahim, salam, Hazrat Ismail, and all the line of prophets that were to follow. So this is, this is one of the great beauties of the character of the Holy Prophet wasallam, that he was actually the embodiment of all the prophets and the message. We know that the message that each prophet brings comes from one source. So they have this uh, origin which is common to them all. They have this message which is common to them all as well. So once we had reached that pinnacle and the Holy Prophet was the Khatum al-Nabiyyin, the, the final law had been sent to him so that no new message could come after that. However, the Holy Prophet himself and the Holy Quran give us guidance as to what would happen after he, he had passed away and what would be the history of man after that. So we are fully aware that Muslims and believers, they attach themselves to Islam and to the character of the Holy Prophet and try to be obedient to him in every matter and in every, in every, in every way. And that obedience and, 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 and that service to the Prophet was also to reach a pinnacle in the coming of the reformer in the latter days who was promised to come, mm -hmm. who would be actually like, a, like an image, mm -hmm. like an absolute mirror image of the Holy Prophet So that does not detract anything away from the actual source, which is the Prophet of Allah But the reformer was to be an actual image of the pro Prophet of Allah, bestowed upon him because of his service and obedience mm -hmm. to the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's totally subservient in that respect and Allah had exalted him to that high and lofty station. The Prophet of Allah sa had, had said that in my, my Ummah there would be people who would be like the Prophets of the Bani Israel. Mm -hmm. So we are going back to that subject of prophethood in the Bani Israel and the Promised Messiah not because of his own self but because of the greatness of the Holy Prophet وسلم, was also a reflection of all the prophets that have been mentioned in the past as well, including the Holy Prophet وسلم, so he was a true image of the Prophet This concept actually is, is, not, is not only made by the Promised Messiah وسلم, 
but many scholars throughout the history of Islam have actually spoken of this uh, in, in clear terms in this exactly the same manner. I have an, a, a number of quotes, I will not read them all, but let me just draw your attention to one or two of them. Hazrat Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani who has said, a person rises, this is an ordinary person, not even the reformer, but any ordinary Muslim, any other person, until he arrives at a station where he becomes the heir of every messenger, prophet, and Siddiq. So he's including all the messengers that have been sent, and that includes the Holy Prophet ﷺ, so he can be a reflection of that. He has also stated about himself, you know, he has said, this is not the person of Abdul Qadir but the person of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he himself is saying that he has attained that persona, that he too is a reflection of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then if I just can point out, Hazrat Baizad Bistami, anhu, he has also said, I am Ibrahim, Moses, and Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, peace be upon them all. So this is another clear reflection of the state of what the other scholars in Islam have also clearly pointed this out to. The Promised Messiah actually in, in, a, in a very humble way has also explained as to why he would be given this title of being a reflection of the Holy Prophet and that's a slightly different bent on this and I think I should read that so that in the words of the Promised Messiah we should also understand in what way he was saying that he was these prophets also. He says this revelation means that I have been bestowed some portions of the special circumstances or special qualities of all prophets, peace be upon them, who have appeared from God beginning with Adam till the end, whether they were Israelized by descent or non-Israelized. There, there has not been a single prophet of whose qualities or circumstances I have not been bestowed a portion of. In this there is an indication, now this is interesting, there is an indication that many people of this age resemble the bitter enemies and opponents of the prophets, peace be upon them, who had exceeded the limits in their rancor and who were destroyed by various types of torment. There has also been displayed and will be displayed in the future the various types of aid and support which God Almighty had displayed in the case of previous prophets. This is from Brahine Ahmadiyya, one of the writings of the Promised Messiah So this allegation that has been historically made against the, Holy, against the Promised Messiah that he has taken upon himself the titles of other prophets, including the Holy Prophet and called himself Muhammad and Ahmad. This is something which is accepted in, in Islam by scholars. And as I say that this is actually the, this is actually through the beauty to the high qualities of the Holy Prophet and in no way through the Promised Messiah's own self uh, trying to make himself in that respect. So just before we move to our next question, Azizab, just on this, and I think this is something that people misunderstand. Clearly the scholars of Islam don't and they have, uh, we've heard various examples and there's uh, plenty more I'm sure. But just to compare someone to someone or to say that you have the qualities of them doesn't mean that at any time that the promised messiah say that he was of the same status of 
the holy prophet of Islam. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is a point sometimes confused, that mm-hmm. just by comparing or alluding that you reflect some of the qualities that came before. It's like anyone. If you see someone mm-hmm. who you revere, you yes. want to be like them. You mm-hmm. want to reflect and you try and develop your own mm-hmm. lifestyle to reflect some of the qualities. But you can never be them. You can never yes, re- reach that pinnacle. And that was very much true of this very humble servant mm-hmm. of the holy prophet of Islam. Yes, yes. In fact, the two symbols he uses in much, many of his writings, and he draws it from the Holy Quran, is that there's a sun and there's a moon. And he cont- considers himself the moon, which in itself has no source of illumination and it has to receive illumination from the other source. And without that source, it doesn't reveal its, its own beauties. So this is what he's talking about. And, and you're absolutely right. It's unfortunate that it's been misconstrued. But uh, this isn't something not unique to the Muslim world. It's happened in the past. The Prophet uh, Jesus, salam, according to the Bible, he spoke about the coming of a, uh, of a Elijah, Elias, Elijah. Mm-hmm. And when he mentioned the qualities that were found in the, the forerunner, John the Baptist, they rejected him mm-hmm. because they felt this was doing a disservice to that person, that prophet who was majestic, who had such power and was supposed to come back in the flaming chariot and all these things. And this man is a humble person who's eating honey and, and locusts in the woods and roaming around in very you know, rough clothing. How can you compare the two? And you miss the metaphors and anal- analogies that are, min- that are mentioned in, in scriptures and try to extend them too far. So he never claimed, and no one can claim, to ever achieve the excellence of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They will never, never has been, never will be anyone like that. And he never claimed to be of that, that matter too, but he said he reflected some of those qualities as these other holy men in the past have said the same thing. We reflected some of the qualities. But one of the greatest qualities he's reflecting is this very opposition. I mean, staunch opposition to the Holy Prophet Muhammad was in his time by Abu Jahl and the chiefs of Mecca as Moses faced from the Pharaoh and the, 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 you know, the leaders of his time. And in this day and age, here's another reflection of that quality of being Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The leaders, the, the scholars, the, the, the rulers of the time, the Muslim world, they are rejecting him and opposing him and showing in this area as well, he is reflecting the, the life of Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and being just like him. And this is what they're talking about, that the, the early prophets went to persecution and opposition. And we see this over and over again in the life of other, other prophets and in the life of the Hazrat Ahmad Alayhi Wasallam. And yet it's, it's, it's a, a very subtle point which many uh, are unable to, to grasp. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, again, a vast subject, and I'm sure we'll return to it again, but thank you for, as ever for your very comprehensive uh, replies. And my thanks also to Tanvir Saab. I'm sure you'll agree with me. You have provided plenty of, uh, or you have plenty of answers there to share with um, some of your other Muslim friends as well. Um, and to reflect on what's been said. Indeed, the evidence is there um, for them to look at uh, themselves. If we can uh, now move to our next question, which comes from Sajid Rehman Saab in Germany. Um, again, thank you and assalamu alaikum and jazakallah for your question. Jahangir Saab, he's talking about uh, the Jamaat, the Amdiya Muslim view uh, on Sufism. Sufism, of course, is perceived as the kind of ideology of saints. It's, it's deemed to be a, a softer side, if I could put it that way, of Islam sometimes, you know, that people see and you hear about Sufi saints and, and how there was great intellect behind them. There were great traditions. But he's asking, when we encompass, encompass this whole 
uh, sense of Sufism? What does sort of our interpretation or our stance from the well, community? We have say? a historical interpretation of Sufism, and we also have, let's say, the an interpretation which has to do with the realities of, of Sufism. The historical interpretation is that every so often, as in other faiths, uh, the ugly head of uh, extremism, fanaticism, has been raised. In this day and age, we can see the same uh, phenomenon happening with, for example, the Wahhabis or Salafis, mm -hmm. as they prefer to call themselves these days, uh, where the hardline, you know, really, you know, ferociously for the practice, the form, all the formalities which are in Islam, and are very condemning of those who don't follow them the way they think they need to be followed. Sufi movements uh, grew as a reaction to that. Okay. And they said that you're putting all the accent on the form, which is the shell. We're going to put all the accent on the essence, the spiritual side of things, which is what's inside the shell. Now, the Ahmadiyya view on this is that this is one way of looking at Sufism as movements that were created, you know, which, which were born, you know, within Islam over the, the history of Islam. But however, the true view of Sufism, according to the, our, you know, interpretation, which, which, is, which is born out of the writings of the Imam Mahdi salam, is that you cannot have just the shell or just the essence. You have to have a shell to contain the essence. And you can't try to hold the essence in your hands because as a liquid, it will eventually seep through your fingers and you will lose it. You need some kind of a container for it as well. So the practical form which has been uh, you know, taught to us in Islam, like the prayers, the fasting, all the, the rituals that we have, which are very simple, but they are rituals nevertheless, they contain the form. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, sorry, they are the, the form which contains the spirit, spirit. which contains the essence. Mm -hmm. And without that, the essence will slip away. Now, what we've seen over the centuries is that this is exactly what's uh, occurred in, in the Sufi movements, which are called tariqas, you know, like uh, the orders, Sufi orders. We see that um, having abandoned prayer, the, you know, the formal salah, or other rituals in Islam, and having thought that they are above having to do these things, they are really putting them above the Prophet, putting themselves above the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu mm -hmm. Those things which he thought were essential, they think are no longer essential for them because they've reached such a high level of spirituality that they no longer need to adhere to them. And so therefore they, they, they fall into other kinds of rituals which they create. And we see that to, in this day and age, many of these movements are now just a collection of uh, made-up rituals, saint-worshipping, and uh, you know all kinds of weird and wonderful things happen mm. at the the tombs of these saints in different parts of the Muslim world, all the way from Morocco throughout Central Asia, you know, right into China. You'll find in Indonesia, you'll find these things happening. But the true Sufism is actually following the Prophet Muhammad you know, to the utmost. That is true Sufism. That is truly delving into the spiritual world while keeping one's grip on the material world, and. We see that those who do that in the best way are those who follow the teachings of the Imam Mahdi And this is why recently, just a few years ago, there was a master of a tariqah in Scandinavia who came to know of the Imam Mahdi He read some of his writings and then started studying what, you know, what, he, was, what he stood for very you know, earnestly. 
And he actually declared that we didn't even know what Sufism was until we knew about Mirza Ghulam Ahmad He said, he is the true Sufi. And now we know what Sufism is. Now we find the Imam Mahdi writing extensively uh, about Sufi concepts and uh, the understanding that Sufis had. We must rem- remember that the Sufi orders were always launched or most often were launched by very, very pious saintly people mm-hmm. who were true saints. Some of them have been mentioned uh, by uh, Dr. Saab today. One was uh, Hazrat Bayazid Bustami, and uh, there were others as well, so many others, uh, J- Jalaluddin Rumi, and uh, I think you mentioned one more, it was uh, Abdul Qadir Jilani. There were so many. Mm-hmm. Huh? So you have all these orders which are named after them, mm-hmm. the Naqshabandi, the uh, Qadris, and all these. You know? These people were following the Prophet Muhammad strictly. Mm-hmm. In, in, they behaved as he behaved, they did their ablutions as he did them, they prayed as he prayed, and they reached, you know, they soared up into the, the, the heights of spirituality, where God was speaking to them, revealing the future to them. And all these things are in their writings, even today, we can see them. The followers, unfortunately, have not always, you know, stayed and stuck to what they, they were teaching. This is very unfortunate. So the Imam Hadi has come to bring all that back. And he even said not only that he had a, a, an affinity with prophets of the past, he also said that he had special affinities with certain saints of the past, some of whom were the, 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 those who began Sufi orders. And this is a spiritual thing, you know, where you have a, a spiritual affinity with somebody who's like your brother in faith, you yeah. could say. Mm-hmm. And this is what the Prophet also said. He said, all prophets are brothers but they are born from different mothers, mm-hmm. you know? But otherwise they are, they are all brothers in that they have that spiritual affinity. And but in fact, in the, with, between you know, Sufis and, and saints and you know, uh, prophets, there, there are these affinities to such a degree that sometimes one looks just like the other in mm-hmm. their persona, in their words, in their deeds, except they, are different, they were born at different times and they're born in different places, but these affinities are there. So Sufism, in reality, the real Sufism is following the Prophet Muhammad to the utmost because that is where we'll find the correct way of living and that is where we will get near to God. This is the only way. If, if anyone does this, then they can perhaps you know, uh, be a true Sufi, inshallah. I don't think a Sufi could have said it any better than uh, that. I, I think that absolutely, you know, what can I say? <laughs> All elements covered fully there, Jangir uh, Saab. Jazakumullah. And my thanks also to Sajid Saab as well. And I think it'd be true to say it's the innovations which then happen when those, uh, I'm sure the saints themselves would reject, reject the saint worship, which uh, comes from the innovations that are then made by certain followers, which is rejected by the community. Jazakumullah Sajid Saab for your question. We're going to go to Ghana for our next question, which comes from Essien Damte. Um, his question is relating, or he's asking a question, Dr. Zayed Saab, on if there's a hadith about houseflies having antidotes as an authentic one. And in this, he's also asking, and I suppose this is an element which in today's world is more relevant than perhaps historically, that is there scientific proof now? It goes back to an earlier question, I suppose, how science proves something that religion may have said many years ago, that these houseflies, the common houseflies, mm. that too often we regard as a nuisance, actually had a purpose. They, they, they carry antidotes to some of perhaps the worst diseases that are known to mankind. Now, this is the remarkable thing about uh, the Holy Prophet and his prophecies in many walks of life. 
of what he talked about 1400 years ago and man could never have imagined such things are now being proved by science to have that concrete evidence is, is now there. Uh, as, as far as we know, as far as the uh, honey is concerned and the honey bee is concerned, the Holy Quran speaks of its curing properties. Uh, but as, as the housefly is concerned, and there is scientific evidence that uh, there are two things, two elements to this. One that is obviously transfers disease by sitting on different uh, places where bacteria may be and then transmitting it to another place and then uh, activating disease in that respect. But the more re remarkable thing is, does it have uh, antibiotic properties or antibodies that it constitutes and which are able to counteract disease in, in certain ways? A lot of research has been done throughout the world in, in, many, in many research papers. And it is quite remarkable that they have found definitely that there are antibiotic properties contained within the housefly maggots, for instance. You know, when penicillin was discovered as an antibiotic by Fleming, I, I, I think it is, isn't it? They thought that this was the best thing after sliced bread and this was the cure and answer to all of man's ailments. But what we have seen in, in recent years and in England, and I'm sure it is the same in America, antibiotics are so overprescribed mm -hmm. that what has happened is that there has strains have come in of bacteria which have res become resistant to it. And in the UK, we talk about MRSA in hospitals and how the hospitals are not able to counteract this type of uh, bacteria with all, the, with all the drugs that they have. But the simple housefly that uh, is in the South Korean research paper was shown to have properties of antibiotics which actually would, uh, uh, would attack the MRSA. Uh, resistant no. virus, uh, virus, so that there was curing properties even mm. in, in that aspect of it, you see. And uh, housefly larvae have been used for bone infections, osteomyelitis for burns and for, for other th uh, medical things. So it goes back to the Holy Prophet Sallallahu who actually gave us this glad tiding that even in the housefly there is some disease but there is some curing properties as well. And now that science is backing that up we find that the problem, this was divinely inspired and uh, it has become true and that is for man to now research further into that and make use of all the creation that Allah has out there for us, many of which is beneficial and we do not realize it, but that is what science is now proving is backing up uh, what the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa As just on that, I mean, the, obviously there's the scientific element and Dr. Saab just in closing there mentioned of referred back to the time of the Holy Prophet where he himself mentioned mm -hmm. how important I mean too often I think in in daily life you just ignore these things yet you know here was a man who went into such detail and actually then spoke of the, the potential that exists and indeed the uh, the resolutions to many crises issues in the future that would come from a simple thing like a house flight yes yes and, and, and this is truly remarkable mm -hmm. Considering the fact that he was uneducated, mm -hmm. he had no access to you know modern laboratories and, and there was you know, no Google. There, there. there was, there was no. nothing there. Yeah. There was nothing mm -hmm. there, and it, mm -hmm. this this is a, a proof that his his words were being guided from a divine source, Allah Al Alim, who knows all things. He's teaching him very simple things to the to the normal viewer or listener, but now we see he was embedded with, impregnated with so much knowledge and wisdom and, and benefit for mankind. 
it, it's true that nowadays they haven't specifically discovered how the two wings operate. Uh, and, and I remember a number of years ago when I was first listening to the fourth Khalifa's uh, question and answer sessions, he mm. talked about this, mm. how the fly lands in a, in a peculiar manner, that it will land with one wing which is uh, impure or full of the impurities into the, into the fluid, to the water, whatever it may be. And the other wing which has this antibiotic factor on it, it remains above. So this is why he's saying you must dip this fly into the water. This is the area where they're now doing further research and Muslims have taken it up. As, as naturally they should have. We should have done this long ago, mm -hmm. looking at these, these points of hadith, which some say are weak or are the, the transmission isn't, isn't correct, but if we can prove scientifically, then that disproves mm -hmm. all that criticism and shows the, the wonderful wisdom and knowledge he's been giving to mankind. Mm -hmm. So a person like me, again, going overseas into Asia and living there for a number of years, when I first got there and they're telling me, you know, uh, if a fly falls in your milk, don't, don't <laughs> flick it out. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? Of course I'm going to flick it out. He said, yes. no, no, the prophet said to, to dip it in. And I found it so, so shocking for my own senses, which I thought would be unhygienic mm. to dip this fly in. But now we're discovering, as Dr. Sabah said, that this is the antidote to the poisonous matter or the filthy matter this fly has to live in. And if we think about this logis mm, logically, logically yeah. this fly has to live in such a filthy environment all the time, God must have done something to protect it from being destroyed. Mm. And so naturally there should have been some mechanism for the, the, the fly itself to remain in existence, otherwise they should all have been dying from these bacteria and diseases it's just constantly you know, uh, immersing itself into. And this was the mechanism, which again has not been discovered until just recently. But the Holy Prophet spoke about it 14 centuries ago, which again is so remarkable. That, yeah, he, you know, there's, there's an interesting thing about crocodiles as well, which uh, has intrigued scientists. Mm. And in recent years, they've been studying it. They wanted to know how the immune system of the crocodile functions and how they avoid necrosis as well, because they also in, live in environments which are very, very you know, heavily bacteria-ridden. And they eat um, you know, rotten flesh. Yet that doesn't affect them. Mm -hmm. Any other thing eating that would just drop dead, you know, mm -hmm. like a poisoning. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they're, they're also researching that. So there's so many things in, in nature which have yet to, to, be, to be, you know, so researched. You want to serve crocodile meat with my, my milk and flies? Is Maybe. That kind of <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think the point which, uh, which Azhar Saab has made here raises another, another issue which is very <laughs> important. And it is Muslims have to, you know, take that upon themselves yes. mm. to yes. actually research. The, um, the scientific type of statements you know, that you find in the Holy Quran or in the Hadith mm -hmm. in an attempt to actually show that uh, there is wisdom behind it. Mm -hmm. And uh, often, as, uh, as Osama said, sometimes you know, the, the, um, the Hadith itself uh, is uh, questioned by Muslims that maybe because it doesn't have a proper you know, line of uh, uh, people reporting it, narrators, mm -hmm. there's somebody missing or somebody is a bit doubtful in nature, you know? so therefore maybe this Hadith isn't true. But it doesn't necessarily. It isn't necessarily the case. It might well be true, mm. but we still need the scientific research to back it up with. Mm. And Muslims are lagging behind yeah, in this area, lagging, unfortunately. unfortunately. So they really. But that really wasn't always should, true. Uh, I mean, there was a time no. where Islam sort of led the world in scientific yes. discovery. It's yes, it did. The it's scientific method was invented yeah. by Muslims. I mean, mm. we've said it again and again. Mm. It was invented by Muslims. If we're even using these laptops today, it's because of Al-Khawarizmi and his logarithms, mm -hmm. which are used uh, you know, to, as the basis of uh, the computer. 
So there were so many things which were benefiting from today, but it kind of stagnated, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And it didn't move on from there. Yeah, and was, other people was, have benefited. It was possibly done in the early era, which is the other thing. The Muslims may have done this research, but now again, it's been buried in the sands of those you know, thousands of years when we've gone dormant on it, and, and we've lost touch with that knowledge. So now a new uh, modern researcher must come forward from the Muslim world to show this, this, this is the science behind these, what seems to be wives' tales and just mm. some, some voodoo, voodoo you know, magic that creates these, these things. So this is what, uh, uh, as he says, is, is the need of the hour. Zakamullah, gentlemen, although I'm minded by the fact there are always these jokes about, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. <laughs> um, perhaps the line should be, well, we'll charge you extra because of its uh, <laughs> antidote and its uh, qualities there. Zakamullah, <laughs> thank you for that. And my uh, thanks also, of course, to um, Essien uh, Damta for that question. Our next question um, comes from Asim Javed Saab. Asalaamu Alaikum, Asim Saab. He said that there's an allegation, again, made there are obviously at times there's many allegations which are made against not just the community but the founder of the community who we recognize as the promised messiah uh, uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed and there's an allegation that Nawazubillah he used to drink wine and particular mention in this context he said is going around about a tonic wine that he acquired from Lahore Dr. Zaid Saab, I mean first of all I think the answer is in the question the word tonic would suggest this is not the kind of uh, you know, we're not talking fine wines which are occupying the cellars, uh, the cellars of some people around the world. This is something which seems to carry, by definition, a, a medicinal quality. Yeah, I think you've uh, hit it on the head with that one because it does relate to a tonic and it had medicinal properties and medicinal uh, pharmaceutical properties. But the other thing that, if they just think about this, this scenario, then they will actually stab themselves in the foot because where do they get the source for this allegation? Because the source of this allegation, actually the source comes from the writings of the community. The Promised Messiah certainly wrote a letter to a companion to obtain some tonic wine from a particular place in Lahore. And that letter was later published by one of the sons of the Promised Messiah I think it might have been Hazrat Muslimah so had it been something that was contrary to the practice of Islam and should have been hidden away, then that should not have been made public mm -hmm. by the Jamaat itself. So by making it public, the Jamaat know that they had nothing to hide in that respect. So that actually goes against the allegation in the first instance in any case. The second thing is that this was a tonic wine that was sold not in some distillery, but it was sold in a shop in Lahore which actually still exists in some parts of the world, E. Plumer & Sons, who was a pharmaceutical company, who was a pharmacist. And okay. what do pharmacists sell? They sell medicines. Yeah. And if you look at the patenting of tonic wine, it is patented as a, as a medicine. So it is in no way an alcoholic drink as such. Mm -hmm. It is used for the treatment of anemia, anorexia, and for women who've had children, you know, difficult births as such. So it's li unlikely that the Promised Messiah was using that for himself because he would be treating other people. So it may have been for someone who was suffering in some ailment. But that again points to the fact categorically that this was for medicinal purposes. It was a medicine, it was a tonic. And the emphasis should be on the tonic rather than the wine because it probably did not have any alcoholic contact, content in any case. But even medicines in this day and age 
some medicines have this label of may cause drowsiness because there may be a, a small percentage trace. of trace of alcohol. alcohol so yeah. primary reason for that it is that it was a medicine. It was something that was uh, obtained for the Promised Messiah perhaps to give to other people around him and therefore it is there in the public eye and the Jamaat has nothing to hide in that respect. It's a very old allegation. It has been answered in that respect and people have been quiet about it because they have realized that that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, labeling on that tonic point, we know that up to 1927 it, its formula was unaltered. It was a tonic uh, and it could contain quinine in it, very bitter medicine. I don't think people would drink that as a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, it would only be used as a medicine for uh, health reasons. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.